Would you join with me in prayer? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations in our hearts be acceptable to you, our strength, our song, and our salvation. Amen. As Sarah mentioned earlier, Liz Candido was planning to be here and had begun writing her sermon, and then there was a family emergency that came up. And so this is a hybrid today. We're used to getting, we're getting used to hybrids in different forms. This is a hybrid today, but I want you to let to know whenever there is an I in the sermon, that is Liz's I, and she is speaking from her experience, and so I'm delivering that from her experience. Today concludes our hearing of Jesus' lessons from the Sermon on the Mount. And you've heard already the Beatitudes, the teachings on salt and light, the fulfillment of the law in Christ. And that leaves me today with the easy parts, murder, hell, adultery, divorce. Thanks so much, preaching team. In truth, Jesus' sermon goes on for a few more paragraphs following today's reading. But this part of the sermon that we're in now, I actually do believe is the most interesting part. Before we've been given a vision of what God's commonwealth, what Matthew refers to as the kingdom of heaven, looks like. Power is inverted. The weak become powerful. The merciful are blessed. The peacemakers are called children of God. And similarly, we have been reminded that the power to bring about this world rests in the hands of people like you and me. We are the salt. We are the light. Jesus has painted a vision of the world that he brings. And if you're like me, you're of two minds about this. I want to live in that world that is promised. And I even sometimes catch glimpses of it. But there is another truth that lives inside me too. The truth that I actually live in this world. The one where injustice reigns. Where my choices are difficult and life is complicated. I live in a world where the peacemakers are often called troublemakers rather than children of God. And I think we all know (coughs) that those of us who hunger and thirst for righteousness have not yet been filled. We live in the in-between, in the time where the commonwealth of God is with us and also just beyond us, always on the horizon. And it may be 2,000 years since Jesus spoke all these words, but I promise you that the people back then were thinking the same thing. This is a beautiful vision, but how do we get from here to there? And this is exactly what Jesus turns to next in his sermon, the readings we have today. How do we live these commitments? How do we enact Christ's fulfillment to be the salt and light? What does that mean for the very complicated problems of our day? Jesus starts by giving us a rather traditional formulation. You have heard it said, in other words, the Hebrew scriptures, the Ten Commandments, all those things have always said, do not murder. And then he continues, but I say to you, 
even if you are angry with one of your siblings, another of God's children, <clears throat> you are liable to judgment. In this way, Jesus takes the lessons of his day and age and extends them. He doesn't abolish the old rules. He doesn't do away with murder or the prohibition to murder. <clears throat> Instead, he makes a distinction between outward observance and inward change. You can't just follow the rule of no murder. That's far too low a bar. Instead, in the commonwealth of God, we will work to discipline even what is in our hearts. The anger and aggression, the rifts that tear us from one another, those are things that we will seek to overcome, all as part of what it means not to murder. The struggle becomes one of the spirit, not just following the rules. Similarly, we can't just abstain from adultery. We need to examine our wayward desires that lead us into temptation. The examination is internal and deep and th totally thoroughgoing. To be oriented toward the co God's commonwealth means an ongoing commitment to this inner work. 500 some years ago, Martin Luther tried to put this into words in his small catechism, which went from merely memorizing the Ten Commandments to opening up a further understanding of what they meant, and then yes, memorizing that. So for instance, in the commandment not to murder, Luther writes, what does this mean? We are to fear and love God that we may not hurt nor harm our neighbor, but help and befriend them in every bodily need. When addressing the commitment not to commit adultery, the commandment not to commit adultery, Luther expands this to say that we are to fear and love God, that we may live a chaste and decent life in words and deeds, and each love and honor one's spouse. Similarly, in the commandment not to steal, Luther says that it means we are to fear and love God, that we may not take our neighbor's money or property, nor get them by false wares or dealing, but help them to protect and improve their property and business. <coughs> Though I take issue with Luther's insistence that we fear God, I might use revere or respect to get at the point instead, I do appreciate his clarity that living in God's way is not simply or even primarily about keeping the prohibitive rules. It is about noticing where our heart and our intentions lie, noticing where we are in relationship to others and living in proactive care. It's not about staying out of hell, but about extending the bounds of heaven in our own lives and within our own reach. Indeed, Jesus in this sermon to his disciples is talking about cultivating ethics, not disciplining specific actions. Certainly one way of taking these scriptures is as a giant walking guilt trip. Every time I'm mad at someone, I'm killing them. Every time you look at another person sexually, you're committing adultery. And that certainly could function as a pretty significant boulder to be rolling up the hill in an attempt to live a Christian life. 
but since Christ came to give us life abundant, I suspect that wasn't likely the purpose of these teachings. Even worse, Christian history is full of instances where we have turned these scriptures into weapons. But I want you to notice that there is no police force involved in Jesus' teachings. The inner work he calls his listeners to is personal, a deep commitment within oneself to be radical, to search for the inner root of our own attitudes and actions. There is no call here for you or anyone else to police that behavior in another. Jesus does not say, cut off your neighbor's hand when she sins. <coughs> his advice is for each of us alone as his followers and how we each might discipline ourselves. And that's it. When I was in seminary, I had a professor who regularly reminded us that anything we preach, we are responsible for. Every interpretation of scripture is a choice. And so it would be wrong not to notice that these exact passages have been used to hurt others for actions they have taken or are perceived to have taken, specifically against women, children, gays, and lesbians. I think of all the women who have been forced to stay in terrible marriages because divorce was not permitted, or the physical and psychological abuse inflicted upon those condemned under scripture of one sort or another. What I'm saying is that when we set up a bar and say anything that crosses this line is sinful, we've missed the point. Jesus is pointing at the kingdom of heaven and trying to describe the sort of radical ethic it takes to inhabit that commonwealth in the here and now. And so we have to be careful to keep looking at where he is pointing and not get distracted by the examples. And we most certainly shouldn't feel any license to call other people out on their sins. After all, we have just been taught that the meek in inherit the earth. In fact, I think Jesus is doing in this text what we're all always trying to do, and that's figure out how to live out our faith. Jesus has told us about how the kingdom of heaven changes everything, and he's providing examples from his time and place for what that might mean. I think if Jesus were with us here today, he would wrestle with the conflicts in the front and center of our own lives and would use them as examples that point us toward how to live more radically, more spiritedly, more caringly as citizens of God's commonwealth. February is Black History Month. We only have a Black History Month because of the per pervasive erasure of contributions to our common life of black people in our society. In this time when Florida has limited all advanced placement black history curriculum, and in which we have literally witnessed the lynching of Tyree Nichols by the state, I have to believe that Jesus would name racism as one of those places of conflict that we all need to look at and wrestle with in ourselves and in our society at large. You have heard it said you must treat all people equally, but I tell you that your obligation is to go deeper 
to go to the root, to carve out the causes of the disease of pe prejudice and racism within you. And that is where the real work lies, the deep work, the investigation of our souls and aligning them with Christ, with the countercultural values of God's realm. Wouldn't it be easier if he had just left us with a list of do's and don'ts? Here are 16 things to do to be a good Christian. But no, the work of the kingdom starts with those basics, but the real work is inside ourselves, fostering within ourselves the courage and compassion and grace to let God's commonwealth, God's kingdom, appear here and now in our lives. To do that inside work, we need to grapple with, among other things, the ways white supremacy and other oppressions shape and form us. We need to examine what deep-seated fears, and here I very deliberately mean the word fears, cause us to hurt and harm our neighbors and keep us from befriending them in every bodily need. Let's just take two verses from today's gospel reading and see what grappling with that might look like. Beginning in verse 23, Jesus gives some concrete advice for action. So when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your sibling has a grudge against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to them and then come and offer your gift. Simple, right? Next time I bring a fatted calf to the altar for sacrifice, I'll think if I've hurt anybody lately, and if so, I'll go say I'm sorry, and then come back and finish the offering. If only it were that easy. If we read Jesus' words more closely, he is asking us to go so much deeper than a breezy apology interrupting our previously scheduled activities. First of all, let's look at the setting where you are offering your gift at the altar. Jesus sets his words in the context of worship, in the offering of our gifts to God. In the commonwealth of God where we are salt and light, when aren't we in worship? When are our gifts not being offered to God? So this isn't about a thought interrupting our Sunday morning ritual. It's about thoughtfulness being part of our every moment. Apparently, God thinks taking care of our broken relationships is more important than going through the motions of worship. Loving God and loving our neighbor as ourselves really are all bound up together on equal footing. And then there's the way Jesus phrases what he wants us to be thoughtful about. If you remember that your sibling has something against you, the Greek word for sibling there, often translated as brother, is adelphos. It literally means one who shares the womb with you. If we're all children of God, though, doesn't that make all of us womb mates? And Jesus doesn't ask us to remember if we've done something hurtful. He asks us to consider whether there's someone else who might have something against us. It's a deliberately vague request. And it asks us to think about things from someone else's point of view, 
to go beyond our immediate way of seeing or thinking about ourselves and to consider more deeply how others might feel and how our attitudes or actions might have affected them. And then Jesus charges his listeners to drop our gifts at the altar and go, to be reconciled with whoever is hurting because of us. Not just to say I'm sorry and call it work, call it good, but to work to repair what has been broken. <clears throat> the Greek word for reconcile here is dialasso, and it can be translated as to mutually transform. That's going to take more than a minute. For mutual transformation and reconciliation to happen, there must be vulnerability, willingness both to speak and to hear hard truths, deep listening, understanding, repentance, forgiveness, commitment to a future relationship. This internal and communal work could take hours or days or a lifetime. By the time you get back to the altar, the fatted calf could have run off and had babies of its own. But at that point, the gift you'd be able to offer God and the world after all that time and deep work will be of so, so much more value. Here we are in worship. Here we are in Black History Month. Here we are with Jesus' call to go beyond mere rules and to live in the spirit of God's commonwealth, to align ourselves with Christ and the countercultural values of God's realm, to wrestle with how we live out our faith in real time. What fellow children of God do we need to remember have something against us? What do we need to drop right here in order to start the journey toward reconciliation? What fears keep us from starting that journey? What gifts of ours could be transformed in the process? If only Jesus had given us that list of 16 things to do to be a good Christian. Instead, he gave us himself and each other and a vision. And then he pointed the way. Amen.